Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Welcome, it's me, the Asian Madness Podcast, bringing you another frustrating case of people who are terrible. We are pretty much at the end of 2022, and that's kind of crazy. Time goes by so slowly when you're experiencing it, but suddenly it's time for 2023. I hope everyone had a decent 2022, and if not, there's always 2023 or 2024 and... If you really need more time, I guess 2025. But seriously, thank you to everyone who put up with me throughout this year. Your support is always appreciated. But enough mindless chit-chat. Today's case has actually been requested multiple times, so forgive me for not keeping track of all your names, but I am finally getting to it. I'm sure you guys remember if you've mentioned it to me, though. So I'm probably going to go out on the limb and sort of assume you guys, as in you listeners of the show, are more or less open-minded individuals and tend to be accepting of those who are different. And just because someone might be different, you won't discriminate against them. This case may remind you of episode 74, where we discussed the murder of Mayang Prasetyo, the Indonesian trans woman who was murdered. Today's case and Mayang Prasetyo's case might come off similar in a sense, such as the fact that both cases involve a trans woman getting murdered, and eerily enough, both cases took place in the same month of the same year. I did not notice this until after I began researching, and it was such an odd coincidence. 
The circumstances surrounding the murders, though, are quite different. And if you're curious and ready to get upset, keep listening. Her name is Jennifer Laude. She's a trans woman. She did not deserve to die this way. And many believe that justice was never really served. Let's begin. As always, let's start from the very beginning. Who was Jennifer Laude? As I mentioned already, she was not always a woman as she's a transgender woman. She was born as Jeffrey Laude on November 4th, 1987, which would make her pretty much my same exact age. She grew up in the city of Tacloban on the island of Leyte in the Philippines, along with her two older sisters. When she was in her teens, she moved to Olongapo City, which is located to the west of Manila, and distance-wise, it's about a two to three-hour drive. Both her older sisters, Marilu and Michelle, lived there at the time, so it was an easy decision for Jennifer to make. I must make something very clear first. I do not know when the choice to become Jennifer took place, so all you guys really need to know is that she was born as a male named Jeffrey, but eventually changed her identity to become Jennifer, as in a woman. This change happened probably sometime during her teens, if I had to make an educated guess. So in other words, I will be referring to Jennifer as a she and a her. Jennifer was quite ambitious and knew what she wanted in life, mostly career-wise. She was interested in fashion, in the beauty industry, and she also had a dream to one day work as a flight attendant. If you recall in episode 76, we talked about the death of Christine Dacera, a flight attendant from the Philippines. I probably also mentioned that it is common for many young women, at least in Asia, to have dreams of becoming a flight attendant. Maybe it's a jet-setting lifestyle, maybe it's how the industry is glamorized. Either way, not a surprising dream for Jennifer, especially knowing how she was into beauty and fashion. So after moving to Olongapo City, Jennifer enrolled in AIE College, a technical and vocational school. She began taking courses geared towards hotel and restaurant management, which honestly is as close as one can get to working as a flight attendant. Obviously, working in the air requires different and extensive training, especially when it comes to safety. But overall, learning how to service in restaurants and in hotels is a good way to start. Aside from her studies, she also kept herself busy by working at a beauty parlor making some money to pay for her bills, and also to send home to her mother. Not much else is really known about Jennifer's life during her years studying, working, and living in Olongapo City, but something big happened to her around 2012, when she was in her mid-twenties. Like many young people out there, your twenties is a time where you want to explore, find out who you really are, and sometimes that means finding meaningful relationships or a person to get intimate with. It's only normal and natural. Many of us want companionship, whether physically or emotionally. So Jennifer did something many of us probably have done. She got online, made a dating profile, and started meeting people. I don't know what her experience dating online was like, because from what I've heard from others, online dating can be extremely brutal. That's not to say finding love is impossible. 
is just a different experience for everyone. Well, regardless of her experience, Jennifer was fortunate enough to meet a man who seemed nice and accepting towards her. This man's name is Mark Susselbeck, and he was a German living all the way in Germany. Relationships are hard, let alone a long-distance one. I know some people find it weird, like, are there no eligible partners near you? Why make something hard even more difficult? Well, that's a valid argument. The other side of that would be, think of how big the world is. How many people are out there? Isn't it kind of possible that someone suitable for you could be out there and not within, like, 10 miles from you? Jennifer and Mark got along and the two had a connection and chemistry, so it was easy. They decided to make it official. You know, if you like it, then go ahead and put a ring on it. Which is exactly what Mark did. He traveled all the way to the Philippines toward the end of 2012 to meet his girlfriend, Jennifer, and the couple had a great time together. Before the trip came to an end, Mark purchased a ring for Jennifer at a mall and immediately proposed to her. Yes, they hadn't been together that long, but who cares? Time works different for every couple. Jennifer said yes, and she officially became Mark's fiancé. Long-distance relationships are tough for many reasons, and one of them has to do with country borders and visa issues. For example, in the U.S., a foreign fiancé would need to submit a bunch of personal info, wait like a year or two, get an interview at the U.S. Embassy or consulate in their own country, and then they may get rejected or approved. If approved, they'll then receive a visa which allows them to move legally to the U.S., but then you have to go ahead and submit even more documents, wait a long time, and then get a green card. So, of course, I looked up the process in Germany, and it doesn't seem too different as in the applicant will need to send in a bunch of personal documents and apply for a residence permit in the form of a visa. One slight difference is that applicants also need to have basic German language skills, which sounds super hard. Well, anyone can apply for this visa, there is a thing known as high-fraud countries, which can make this process more difficult for individuals of certain nationalities. I don't know about Germany, But for example, in the U.S., high-fraud countries include Nigeria, Ghana, India, China, Morocco, Kenya, Mexico, Nigeria, Pakistan, Yemen, and the Philippines. When I say high-fraud country, it doesn't mean that citizens from these countries are usually rejected. It's more like they get scrutinized more closely than other countries. Did you know that the top country for U.S. fiancé visa issuance is the Philippines? Well, now you know. I would think that this list wouldn't be too different for Germany, because Jennifer and Mark tried applying multiple times, but each time they tried, she would get rejected. The couple didn't give up, though, as they continued to plan for their marriage and future. One thing to note, I have no idea if Mark was aware that Jennifer was a trans woman, I want to say he knew, not just because he met her in real life, but also because of how he reacted when shit went down. I personally don't think this should factor in that much, but just wanted to mention this in case anyone was wondering about this as well. So, life went on. There really isn't much else to note between Jennifer's engagement and the day 
everything went to shit. Therefore, I'm going to skip forward to the day that changed many lives in a terrible way. The day was October 11th, 2014. Jennifer and her friend, Barbie, who was also a trans woman, had plans to go out to a nightclub that night. Jennifer told Mark about her plans, got herself ready, and headed out for the night. Now, let me go off on a quick tangent. There are a few red light districts in the Philippines, and one of the most well-known ones are located in Angeles City and the Subic Bay. What else is in Angeles City and Subic Bay? A lot of U.S. Marines. Can you read between the lines and make a connection? Yes, I strongly believe there's a correlation between the two. As in, when there's a lot of U.S. Marines around, there's also a lot of women engaging in sex work. Subic Bay is located on the western side of Luzon Island, which happens to be very close to Olongapo City, where Jennifer lives. Subic Bay used to be one of the largest U.S. Navy bases up until the year 1992, but nowadays it's simply known as the Subic Bay Freeport Zone, an industrial and commercial area. While it's no longer a U.S. Navy base, the Philippine government went ahead and gave the U.S. military permission in 2012 to use Subic Bay for military reasons, such as hosting U.S. military ships, marines, and aircrafts, with prior approval, that is. This is tied to the Visiting Forces Agreement from 1999, basically an agreement between the host country and a foreign country agreeing to military visits. So with that tangent out of the way, let's get back to the case. The club that Jennifer and Barbie were headed off to was located in the red light district. And on that day, there were various Marines out and about on shore leave. One of these Marines was a 19-year-old guy named Joseph Scott Pemberton. And who was he? Joseph Scott Pemberton was just another regular young American guy who decided to join the military. He was born in New Bedford, Massachusetts, in December of 1994. So, yeah, he's quite young. Anyone younger than me is very young, and I'm sure lots of you feel the same way. Anyway, according to everyone around him, he was extremely normal, as in nothing about him really stood out. Not exactly in a bad way, either. He didn't have problems in school, no problems at home, no issues with friends. He graduated from a vocational technical high school in 2013 and decided he wanted to pursue the military life, so he joined the Marines. He began his boot camp training life in August of 2013, and in October of 2014, he was sent to the Philippines for a joint military exercise, and his ship ended up docking in Subic Bay. So Joseph and a few of his pals decided to hit up the local scene during their R&R time as in rest and recreation time. And yeah, for many military men, that meant hitting up the red light district. We know alcohol is usually involved, and many times it also involves women. Joseph and his friends chatted up Jennifer and her friend Barbie. They hung out and had fun together. Barbie eventually decided she wanted to head over to the local motel with one of the Marines for some private R&R time which is 100% fine. They're adults. Consent is sexy, all that. Jennifer and Joseph headed out with the couple as well, 
and the two couples ended up getting two rooms at the motel for a quote-unquote short stay. What does that mean? Yes, obviously we know it means they were going to hook up. Maybe it's a similar concept, but in Taiwan, for example, there are tons of motels where you can go and quote-unquote rest for two or three hours. That usually means couples go there to have sex. I'm sure many countries have similar hotel code word systems, so just putting it out there as an example. Hopefully we're all adult enough to not get weirded out by any of this. About half an hour after Jennifer and Joseph checked into their room, Joseph ended up leaving the motel alone. No sign of Jennifer anywhere. Maybe the staff saw Joseph leave the motel and assumed that their playtime was over. So they popped on over to check out the room and to probably clean it up, I hope. The door was left open. The staff entered and found Jennifer still in the room. But she was very, very much unconscious. She was found half naked in the bathroom. Her body bruised, especially around her neck. And her head was hanging inside the toilet bowl. That's a horrific scene. And I cannot imagine how panicked and shocked the hotel staff must have felt at the moment. The police and emergency services were called immediately. The staff had an idea as to who entered the room with Jennifer. They had CCTV footage of the couple entering the motel together, but it only showed the man leaving. Police found a discarded condom in the room, so that was collected to test for DNA if needed. At the time, no one knew who the white man was, and the hotel staff was only able to describe him as a foreigner with a marine-type haircut and appeared to be between 25 and 30 years of age. I suppose most guys in the military had a typical look, and I assume locals see enough U.S. Marines around to recognize who's in the military and who's a tourist. And yes, Joseph was only 19, but generally speaking... It's quite common for Asians to think that white people look older than their age at first. Same thing the other way around, I feel. Asians tend to look a little younger for their age until they hit a certain age, that is. You know the saying, Asian don't raisin. I don't really like that saying because it doesn't even rhyme. Jennifer, of course, was not unconscious. She was already dead by the time hotel staff found her. There were deep bruising marks around her neck so it was likely she was strangled, and some sources even stated that her neck was actually broken. That's how much force was used against her. This was not just assault. This was plain-as-day vicious murder. So the Philippine National Police got to work, and pretty much knew at this point they were on the lookout for a young man from the Marines. The U.S. Embassy in the Philippines was also notified of the situation, and they of course promised to do whatever they could to assist in the investigation. After all, it was more likely than not one of their citizens that committed this crime. But time was of the essence. Once the embassy and the military got involved, all ships that were set to depart from Subic Bay had to be put on hold while the investigation continued. The police eventually narrowed down their list and landed on Joseph Pemberton. I suppose it could be a mix of witness testimonies and word getting around. I mean, if you had just killed someone and you're not a psychopath, you're probably going to be acting a little off or even tell someone else. Jennifer's friend, Barbie, 
also reportedly gave a clear statement and was able to tell the police who the man was. Because of this, she was said to have been entered into the witness protection program. Imagine all the hate she would get from Joseph's friends or those who think Jennifer deserved to die. So with the knowledge the police had, Joseph Pemberton was listed as the prime suspect for Jennifer's murder. The road to his arrest was kind of treacherous, though, mostly because he was a foreign citizen and part of the military. Everything kind of worked differently. Joseph was supposed to surrender himself for a preliminary investigation at the prosecutor's office, but he was a no-show. He had a lawyer, and of course, his lawyer was on his side. So law enforcement and prosecutors had to go down another path. Joseph was detained and taken to Camp Aguinaldo, which is the headquarters of the armed forces of the Philippines. He was still rather uncooperative, and his lawyer even tried to reduce his charge from murder to homicide. I'm not 100% sure what the difference is, but after reading up on many murder cases, it could very well be the difference between premeditated and heat of the moment, passion, killing. This motion, though, was rejected by the court. After some more back and forth involving the local police, the U.S. Embassy, the U.S. Navy, all that, Joseph Pemberton finally surrendered himself. It seemed as if Joseph was rather forthcoming with what happened. He gave his account of what went down the night of October 11th, and most of it matched what the police already knew, as in how they met and where they went afterwards. Joseph told the police that after finding out that Jennifer was a trans woman, or as he put it, gay, he lost his shit and murdered her violently. In other words, he pretty much freaked out and used a trans panic defense. This doesn't really make sense to me. Here's the deal. You can have preferences and whatnot. Not into a certain gender? That's okay. Not into a certain type of person, physically or personality-wise? That's fine. At any time after learning the truth, he could have gotten up and walked away. But he didn't. He panicked so hard, and the only way to ease his panic was to murder Jennifer, apparently. Quote, I choked it, wrapped my arms around it until it stopped moving, and dragged it towards the bathroom. Unquote. Direct quote from Joseph Pemberton. As you can already see, he couldn't even give Jennifer a proper human pronoun. If he recognized Jennifer as a man as opposed to a woman, why not just use he? His continuous use of it really paints a picture as to what he thinks of trans people. And it's not a very pretty picture. It's dehumanizing and, honestly, quite offensive. Like I said, it's totally okay to have preferences. But saying things like this and acting like this is really gross. The Department of Justice continued to push forth that this case could go to trial due to murder, but they still offered Joseph a plea bargain. Regardless of such heavy accusations, Joseph decided to plead not guilty. Not sure if he didn't see anything wrong in his ways or his lawyers advised him of this, but he decided to go down the not guilty road. So thus began his trial in March of 2015. The trial took several months, and plenty of people, including Barbie, took to the witness stand. The doctor who performed Jennifer's autopsy also took to the witness stand 
stating that according to his findings, Jennifer had been punched and strangled, then eventually drowned in the toilet. Even some of Joseph's military buddies testified against him, saying that Joseph told them about what happened with Jennifer. They admitted that their military training did prepare them for physical confrontation, including how to choke people out. Forensic experts also came forward, stating that one of the condoms found in the hotel room did have Joseph's fingerprints on it. Now, you might be wondering, who came to testify on Joseph's behalf? Well, his mother. Honestly, I get it. Family will try to stick by you, and they're also probably hella biased. She stated that she found it quote-unquote impossible for her son to kill, even though her darling boy admitted to it. Also, he's like in the military. I wouldn't think it would be impossible for him to kill, right? Pemberton's defense team stuck to what they initially told the police, that he was shocked and panicked after finding out that Jennifer was born male. According to Joseph's team, after he found out that Jennifer was trans, he immediately pushed her off the bed, to which Jennifer got upset and slapped him once. Joseph was angered and began to choke her until she fell unconscious. He then dragged her to the bathroom, trying to revive her with some water, but after not getting his desired results, he left her body by the toilet and left the room. I don't really get it, like, maybe he was trying to splash water on her face, but somehow she ended up drowning? That's weird. Joseph did insist that Jennifer was not dead when he left her. How do you feel about his account? Even if Jennifer wasn't dead when he left her, fact is that she died afterwards from the injuries he gave her. So is that any different? Any better? His defense lawyer told the public that Joseph, quote, felt that he was being raped. He was so repulsed and so disgusted because he did not give his consent to allow a man to do that to him, unquote. Honestly, there are many questions regarding what really went down that night, but we will circle back to all that later. So the trial went on for months, and finally in December of 2015, there was a verdict. Joseph Scott Pemberton, 21 years of age, was found guilty of homicide. Don't throw a party yet, though, because he was only sentenced to 6 to 12 years, which was then later reduced to a maximum of 10 years. Also, spoiler alert, he's actually already free. One reason why they gave him such a lenient sentence had to do with the fact that Jennifer was supposedly not forthcoming with her gender identity. Like, yeah, I can imagine getting shocked and upset over that, but somehow that gave him the license to kill. Like, oh, you killed someone, but we get it. The Laude family lawyer stated that, quote, It is not right that these mitigating circumstances showed his bigotry towards a transgender woman and that the bigotry itself was the reason he killed her, unquote. Aside from getting jailed for a few years, Joseph was ordered to pay the Laude family over 4.5 million pesos. Joseph was jailed at Camp Aguinaldo during his entire sentence. So let's fast forward a little bit. Like I said, Joseph Pemberton has already been released. This happened in September of 2020, after he was granted a partial motion of reconsideration. For whatever reason, the then-president Duterte who once vowed to never release Pemberton, suddenly did a 180 and decided to grant Joseph an absolute pardon. You can imagine how the general public reacted to this. 
Jennifer's family, the LGBTQ community, government officials, celebrities, etc. They were quite appalled of this injustice. Six years after Jennifer's death, her killer was now free to go home, and the name Jennifer Laude was once again in the news. Some see this pardon as a huge slap on the face for fellow Filipinos, as if a Filipino's life, especially a Filipino trans woman's life, is of no value. Duterte, of course, was heavily criticized for this. Some called him a shameless sellout and accused him of valuing the U.S. government over his own people. I can absolutely see why people felt this way. If Jennifer was killed by another Filipino, or let's say a white woman was killed by a Filipino, would they have gotten the same treatment? There were conflicting accounts on whether Joseph Pemberton officially apologized to the Laude family or not. But either way, it doesn't make a huge difference. He pled not guilty from the start, used the whole trans panic defense as an excuse to murder, and threw more salt in the wound by referring to Jennifer as an it, rather than a she or even a he. Joseph Pemberton, of course, was very excited to be out of prison. He was still very young, only 26, which, ironically, was how old Jennifer was when she was murdered. Joseph didn't face any consequences after returning to the U.S., and it is rumored that he enrolled in college and is probably leading a rather normal life. In case you were wondering, Joseph's family still loves him very much, as all families should. Love doesn't mean you shouldn't discipline or help them out, though. I don't know what his family dynamic is like, but from what I've read, they all seem supportive of him, including his uncle. Quote, his family loves him very much and nothing is going to change that. I know the kid very well. He's a really good kid. I personally feel there is more to the story. Unquote. Thoughts? So that's pretty much the case of Jennifer Laude. But there's a few more things we have to talk about. First of all, was she forthcoming with her gender identity at all, whether to Joseph or her fiancé? I couldn't find information on whether Jennifer was pre-op or post-op. Either way, she may have informed Joseph after they arrived in the motel room, or he could have found out during. While it's a good idea to be upfront with these things, there was still absolutely no need to be this violent. As for her German fiancé, I believe Mark knew of her identity. The two had spent months together when he visited her in the Philippines. Most importantly, after she was murdered, he immediately flew to the Philippines to attend her funeral and even tried to sneak into Camp Aguinaldo to confront Joseph Pemberton. His actions had unfortunate consequences, though, as he was forced to leave the country and was barred from entering the Philippines in the near future due to unlawful trespassing into military facilities. This was a huge blow to Mark because it seemed like he genuinely loved Jennifer and the two had plans to get married in March of 2015. He tried contacting immigration centers, the Philippine government, and whatever other agency he could to find out whether or not they could grant him re-entry to the Philippines. As we know, there's rarely just one single victim in cases like these, and Mark has openly stated that he has suffered a lot emotionally. He knows what people say about his fiancée, about her being trans, about her being a quote-unquote hooker or a cheater, some even criticizing Mark for being with her. 
Now, if Jennifer was a cisgender woman, there would be a lot less backlash for sure. None of this negativity has affected his feelings for her, though. Mark has also released a personal statement, and while it's quite long, it's worth a read. I'll link it in the show notes so you can check it out. Now, the second thing I wanted to touch on. Since Jennifer and Joseph met at a club in the red light district, it was rumored that Jennifer was actually a sex worker. Okay, but so what? That doesn't really factor into the equation at all. Her fiancé didn't say anything about it, nor did it affect how he felt about her. So why should any of us care? Like, does it affect us? Does it mean she should die for that? While I believe most of us find this crime repulsive and very much unnecessary, it's probably not shocking to know that there are people out there who will blame Jennifer for what happened. This tends to be a touchy subject, but many acknowledge that Jennifer was the victim, but she should have been honest and upfront about her being trans. I do agree, though, that it's a good idea to be upfront about it, not necessarily just for the other person to know. It's also a major safety issue for the trans person, as you can see in Jennifer's case. I can see Joseph getting upset and leaving after finding out. He could feel like he's been lied to, sure, but, again, does not excuse murder. So maybe some might think, Jennifer was a prostitute, what did you expect? Well, some basic human rights for starters. Just because someone is a sex worker doesn't mean their life doesn't matter as much. Yeah, I know some people will still think that way regardless of what I say. There's also a huge phobia slash bias towards trans people. Honestly, most of us probably don't understand how it feels to live that life. Not understanding is not an excuse to be a shit person. Sometimes it takes courage to live a life you truly feel comfortable with, and that's not something all of us have to experience. There are weird ideas that, oh, trans people are more likely to cheat, they're more likely to be this or that. I don't really understand these so-called facts, to be honest. Show me data. Show me actual research. Either way, does not justify her getting murdered. As I was researching this case, I also came across a few articles that talked about the connection between U.S. military troops and prostitution in the Philippines. It's kind of a known fact that most often than not, U.S. servicemen that arrive in places like the Philippines go to red-light districts for sex. In a similar way, many male tourists go to Pattaya in Thailand for sex, as the sex industry is very well known in that area. While some of us can view this as a form of work, a transaction, is it really this simple? According to a human rights organization worker that spent years working with girls in Olongapo City, the American military in the Philippines has, quote, sustained the brutal economics of prostitution. Most of the girls come from poor rural villages. They're drawn to the American dollars, and they come thinking they'll get jobs on military bases to help support their families back home, unquote. Some arrive in the city looking for legit work like selling food, etc., but as a young woman, they usually end up getting recruited into the sex industry because of high demand. What I found crazy is that these girls are required to have checkups at the Social Hygiene Center, funded by the U.S. Navy, every other week, which I'm guessing is a way to check for STDs. On the other hand, though, the servicemen that solicit these women 
do not have mandatory checkups. It's pretty much recognizing what these girls do when it comes to the U.S. servicemen. While I think it should be totally okay for a woman to choose to do sex work, it doesn't seem like it is a good deal for them. They're paid very little. They are always at risk for STDs and pregnancy. And on top of that, abortion is illegal. Like, what a terrible deal. I also happened to stumble upon this stupid blog detailing how to make the most of your time in Subic Bay for single men. Well, at least it's targeted towards single men, but still. Here are some direct quotes from the blog. Quote, If you want to make sure you get laid in Subic Bay, you should read this guide. There is also an abundance of everyday girls craving to find a foreign boyfriend. This means it isn't necessary to pay for sex. Quality office and student girls around the city. Unquote. I know we all have our different opinions and probably different experiences when it comes to these things, but I'm an Asian woman and I'm telling you what I know and how I feel about this. So I'm open to any kind of conversations or discussions you might have. Just let me know. So there you have it. The murder of a young Filipino woman, only 26, and her murderer literally got to walk off after a few years in prison to live out the rest of his life. I know I have Filipino listeners out there because, like, at least 10 of you messaged me asking to cover this case. So here it is. I hope I did not disappoint. I know I tend to add a lot of commentary, but it's my podcast and it adds some personal flavor to it, or I think it does. I hate that this happened, but I bet there are tons of other people out there who have experienced something similar, maybe to varying degrees. It's dangerous to be a trans person, because some people fail to see them as a person with feelings and thoughts. I do hope that we're going in the right direction, though. I know it takes time, and hopefully people can be more accepting of things they do not understand. I can admit for a fact that I do not know what it's like to be trans, and I tried my best to be thoughtful in this episode. If I did make a mistake, or refer to something incorrectly, please let me know. But do it nicely because I'm kind of sensitive. Thank you all again for tuning in. This was a bit of a heavy case, and wherever Joseph Pemberton is at now, I hope I never have to see his name in the news ever again. I also do hope he feels remorse and regret, but too little too late. Stay safe, and always remember to be kind. Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. Talk to you all in 2023. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.